Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by James Max, broadcaster, financial expert and columnist. James presents Early Breakfast every weekday morning on Talk Radio from 5 to 6.30am. He also presents a weekly paper review show for Talk Radio TV called Between the Sheets. He's a columnist for the Financial Times and Spectator Life. Away from broadcast, he's a non-executive director of the M7 Regional e-Warehouse REIT, a business advisor to CEOs and businesses, a trustee and member of council of the Royal Albert Hall, and a committee member for the Ultimate News Quiz, a charitable event raising money for action for children and restless development. He's also chairman of the Frinton on Sea Lawn Tennis Club. He's appeared on a range of TV shows from GMB and This Morning on ITV to Sky News and Channel 4. He's a regular panellist on Jeremy Vine on Channel 5 and often opines on Jeremy's radio show on Radio 2. So firstly, a very warm welcome to you, James, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Hello. I, I was listening to that intro and I was thinking, blimey, who's this you got on? Sounds fascinating. Well, and as we heard from that intro, clearly the world of finance has pretty much dominated your working career. How did that come about? Was that something you'd uh, always been wanting to do? Well, I think when I started work, I'd done a vocational degree. I studied real estate at Reading University, not as one interviewer put it to me. They said, what's this reading thing you've been doing? I said, no, no, it's it's called Reading. It's the university. Anyway, so I studied land management, nothing to do with land or managing, everything to do with real estate. And I studied that and I uh, qualified as a chartered surveyor. I did that for, I don't know, six and a half, seven years. I became a director of a property advisory company and then in swooped an American investment bank. And they said, James, would you like to come and join us? Would you like to come and do investment banking? We need somebody who's an industry expert. I looked around and I thought, okay, all right, fine. That sounds interesting. And I joined investment banking at a really exciting time. It was just at the end of the 90s when American investment banks were coming to the UK. They were beginning to take market share, bring in their technology, the way that they were doing things, completely different and exploiting arbitrage in all sorts of ways that perhaps the UK had not seen before. And that then led to a fruitful career there. And then I zipped into private equity and I was about to become involved in a new private equity fund. And then it all kind of blew up and the boss left and various other things happened. And I thought, well, do I really want to be tied into this? So I had to be a good lever. And this is where people perhaps start to interpret why you would go and do something. Did I always want to be a broadcaster? Not really. Did I want to be famous? Not especially. It just came about because I was given the opportunity to take part in this TV show and it was the only way I could be a good lever. And I'm not going to discuss the vulgarity of uh, numbers, but let's just say if there's a significant amount of money that you can either take on a table or not take on a table, you're, you're going to do pretty much anything you can to, to take it. So I wanted to be a good lever. And the way to do that was to take part in this telly show, do something completely different. So that's where it kind of started. And Blimey, that was 15 years ago. And of course, you first came to prominence as a semi-finalist in the first series of The Apprentice. Did the experience help your career from then on at all? Uh, No, (laughs) I I, I say no. I think had I wanted to or had I stayed in real estate or investment banking or private equity or something, I think to do something like that, a TV show is pretty much near career suicide because people don't want people who have that kind of high prominence uh, working for them, really. It's not something that is conducive particularly to large firm culture because it means that you're better known than the individuals at the top of your company. It means that people from the press are kind of harassing you and writing about you or what you do. And if you do anything you know, significant... 
it, it's kind of not really compatible. I didn't really realize that at the time, but it's just not. But having said that, you know, sometimes people refer to it and they say, oh, you know, that's that's why you ended up on TV or radio and it must have given you good skills. I, I think it opened my eyes to it and it gives you a base of which to start. But like anything, you've got to go and learn what you do. And broadcast is the same as anything else. It requires skill. It requires hard work and dedication. And it's, you know, it's a cutthroat business and your face sometimes fits and sometimes it doesn't. And it's pretty harsh. And so, yeah, sometimes people refer to The Apprentice. I think it's more that it gave me the pause in my career that I had to go and do something else. And therefore, I had to think about what what can I do with the skills that I've got in, in the background and the things that this kind of exposure to the public eye have, have given me as well. But again, I'm really not interested in being famous. I'm interested in being well known for what I do. And that's the same in when I worked in real estate and banking as it is now in, in what I do on broadcast. And I think there's quite a, whether it's a subtle difference or a major difference, I, it is a difference nonetheless. And having worked, as you say, on both sides of the fence, given your knowledge and experience you've now gained and the changes you've seen over the years, in terms of financial broadcast, I'm talking about the breadth and depth of coverage. Do you think it's improved over the last decade, 20 years, or is there room for more? I think there's certainly room for more. I think what has improved is the ability to talk to very specific audiences. So if you are wanting to connect, particularly B2B, and you want to connect with what I would describe as experienced investors or experienced uh, financial traders and operatives or uh, people in business, you can do that through the means of here we are with a podcast. You can do it with certain broadcasts that before you would have had to have huge resource and huge expertise to do. And now, frankly, uh, any Tom, Dick or Harriet can do it. And that's great. Uh, what is not great is the lack of coverage by mainstream media because they think business is boring. And all they're interested in is the story about the scandal. They're interested in the story about the scurrilous situation. And they very often confuse personal finance with business. And they don't want to talk about a good news story. They don't want to talk about an export success. They don't want to talk about a company takeover. They don't want to talk about something for fear it might be too complicated. And therefore, the vast majority of our population remains hugely ignorant over what's happening, not through any fault of their own, by the way, or not me wishing to be derogatory about people, but because it's not in the mainstream and because even things like The Apprentice, for example, it's been turned into a show. And of course, it's always been a show, but it kind of started off as something that had a sort of real business base. And what broadcasters and people involved have realised is that this is a platform and it's an entertainment with a business hook. It's a saying that uh, old style Top Gear was less about the cars, more about the people presenting it. And that's sort of where we've ended up. Do I think that news bulletins and broadcasters and different platforms need to spend more time on business? Absolutely, because it affects the money in our pocket, it affects our retirement, it affects our lives, it affects our families' lives, it affects everything we do, and yet we don't talk about it. And just jumping around a bit here, but do you think maybe financial education in the public has improved? I mean, obviously, we, we saw the rise of the meme stocks in the States. I don't know whether the pandemic perhaps helped in focusing the mind and perhaps allowing some more time for financial research by individuals. I don't know whether it's financial research or whether it's just bandwagons. So we've all heard about the various different bandwagons that have been created, whether it be cryptocurrency or anything else, where some people have become incredibly wealthy as a result of taking a punt. And I'm still kicking myself for the, the time that I started talking about things like Bitcoin. And, you know, it was at the ridiculously low levels and people were talking about its volatility. And I probably would have made 60 times my money had I done it. But then on the other hand, it's the same with tech stocks that 
back in 2003, Marks and Spencer and Apple were worth about the same amount of money. And we look at Marks and Spencer today possibly being hawked over by a private equity firm because they've still got this huge real estate portfolio that could be exploited. And chances are that the value of the entity is not as great as the sum of the parts. But it's still little, you know, minnow fishes compared to the likes of Apple, which who knows how much is worth? 2.3, 2.6 trillion dollars. It's exponential. And, and we've seen this huge creation of wealth across the whole financial sector. So of course, some people have become interested in it. It doesn't necessarily mean that the education around it, other than talking about either the scandal or the rags to riches stories that we hear about being discussed in the mainstream media, they haven't because they either are populated by people who don't really understand or want to understand. Alternatively, their uber lords think that uh, the punters don't want to know about it. Okay, so let's stay topical. In terms of where we are at the moment, have you got any any opinions about the rise of tech, the changing global markets, current inflationary pressures and so on? Yeah, of course. Whether or not my uh, my views are in any way valid, who only knows? But the rise of tech has only just begun. I think the pandemic has showed us how important tech is. It has accelerated in the same way that postal strikes at the end of the 80s accelerated the need for email and couriers and various other forms of transport. So the tech revolution now in terms of how I don't know about you, but I choose sometimes to do meetings face to face and sometimes I do them down the line. You know, it's become part of the mix. So that means that those platforms, that technology, that working from home element is always going to be there in the same way that I'm freelance. I'm able to do pretty much everything I want to, either from a mobile phone or an iPad or whatever. I don't need to be static. I can be anywhere in the world. I can access any document I need to access. I can access any meeting. I can see pretty much any asset virtually. I can discuss anything that's going on in the same way that we can publish stuff. So I think the pace of change that we have seen to date will probably and only accelerate. And that's scary because that means that there is an inverse relationship between skills and experience. And it means that the older you are, arguably, the more retraining you are going to do, otherwise you are going to become a dinosaur and almost unemployable because the tech that we all operate and employ is going to drive everything. And that, of course, feeds into markets. We're seeing the the breakdown of this globalization that everybody said was so great. Finally, people have realized that actually it's not so great for the environment. It's not so great for people's jobs and careers and livelihoods. It's not so great for world politics. It's not so great for wealth distribution. It's not so great for cooperation or indeed uh, preservation of different people's ways of living and cultures. So there are a whole range of backlashes which are taking place in in that globalized marketplace, combined with the fact that inflation, I think there are two kinds of inflation that we've got running through the system, maybe more. One is that um, the change in information means that people have got far more knowledge on what other people are being paid, uh, how much goods cost globally, how much money is being creamed off by people at the top, etc., combined with a huge change in, in resource and resource allocation and, and what we value. I mean, look at history. Years ago, if you were the farmer, you were the wealthy person. Now you're not. It's all down to distribution. If you were the supermarket, you became wealthy. Now it's down to the multiples are applied to the firm that delivers the stuff to your door rather than going to the supermarket that was the natural selector and distributor and 
of the deals. So we're seeing that shift of wealth in the same way that years ago, investment banks were seen as that huge distribution channel. Well, hello, the rise of tech means that they've got the distribution channels. Why is it that they can undercut the traditional marketeers? And I talk about mainstream media as well. You know, that distribution of, of knowledge. Why have an advert that may or may not hit people when they see it because they may or may not be interested compared to the bespoke ad that hits you absolutely when you're at the time that you want to you want to this or you want to buy that or you want to do the other i mean it tech is is um the rise of tech the power of tech the the changes that we're going to see in all of our lifestyles are and have only just begun and i think it's going to be a very very different place in 20 30 years time to the one that we currently have yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I spoke to a guy called Mark Mobius on his book on inflation. It seems this was around a year, maybe just over a year ago. And obviously in the current inflationary environment, it seems kind of out of sync. But what he was basically saying was, um, if you take a historical perspective, that very rise in tech ultimately is going to lead to lower prices because of more automation, because of more efficiency. And so inflation largely is a thing of the past. And of course, that's a very interesting point of view, particularly prior to the current inflationary spikes we're seeing that various central banks are describing as transitory. Well, arguably, I think with inflation, one has to wait and see what happens to the great energy situation, because at the moment, the power has historically been with oil companies, with gas companies, with energy providers. And, and that's been the engine, the fuel to so many different things. But as that becomes a lessened constituent part of our costs of, of production, of costs of uh, distribution, all those sorts of things, then that power, if you like, uh, means that tech perhaps can take a bigger slice of that cake, combined with the fact that money is going to be required for different things. And this is where we're beginning to see information overload that you talk about, yes, all these great changes in tech are going to provide these terrific uh, reductions in the cost of pretty much everything. Yes, to an extent, except choice means that you're then going to have competition. And competition means that all of those costs then get layered up to try and get our eyeballs focused on the things that create money. And we now talk about content being king. Well, it's so true, isn't it? If you have a look at the distribution channels for, say, uh, Netflix, that everybody thought was a bit bonkers when it first started. You can watch it, you know, you can watch whatever, whenever you want it. Or, or Apple Music. Gosh, you, you don't have to buy records anymore. You can just download it and Spotify and all that. Yeah, because the huge number of people who might be prepared to do that and, and pay a subscription means that the model works. So, of course, it brings down its cost. I don't know about you, Richard, but I used to spend gazillions on, on records and music, and I love the physical product. And, of course, I don't anymore. It's all about playlists because... The other thing is you have so much choice. Well, what am I going to listen to next? That if you're not careful, you, you end up reducing the pool of what you listen to. Because unless it's curated by somebody, you just get information overload. And we've got that with financial data. Everybody says, oh, big data, that's so important. Unless you can analyze it, unless you can bring it down to a constituent part to take a decision, and unless you can route your way through it in a way that makes sense, you just become overcome by it all. Finally, James, we've heard in terms of your background that you've got a particular expertise in property. It's obviously a, a subject close to, to many of our listeners' hearts. How do you see the UK's position at the moment, be that residential or indeed commercial? Let's start with commercial. I think much has been written and said about how the office is going to change and how we're all working from home and all this sort of stuff. And I think that's been overplayed to an extent. I think what we require of the workplace is going to change. I mean, years ago, it was all about having your own office. And that's what you aspired to when you started that, you know, you wanted to have an own office, you had to share initially. And then, and then people said, oh, no, we must have an open plan. And then it became these sort of big, wide, open trading floors and office places and all this sort of stuff. And, and everybody then sort of claimed their desk 
desk and you went under their desk and you found piles of shoes and tut. And then people got very upset if they were moved around and they said, oh, we must be in our teams and they empire built. And then what we've seen, again, as a result of the pandemic, is that, in fact, you need to have flexible space. When you're all together, you need to be able to get together. When you're not together, why waste that space? We've got to be more efficient with it. There must be ways and means in which we can book our space, use it. And frankly, we've tremendously inefficient with commercial space combined with look at what we use use commercial space for that meeting eating greeting all that stuff is it's still very much there shopping we hear the end and the demise of the high street but I'm not sure that's true, but what we use the high street for is definitely going to change. But again, it comes down to curation. I think that the the local shop that's curated by somebody who has style and, and knows how to put together a shop with things that you want to buy is going to do really well compared with the mass high street that doesn't and has no taste, no style, no delivery and no customer service. So, you know, goodbye to them. Hello to the local provider of a shop that you really want to go into and spend your money in. And also, I think, you know, people have been talking about the end of the shopping centre and how, you know, it's a it's a sort of bygone era. People still like doing that stuff. It's just it's it's probably going to be brand driven because we're we're so brand focused that in a way the brands don't mind whether you buy online or in store. So therefore, it becomes an in-store experience that they want to build their brand. So they don't care if you come in, buy the shoe, the piece of electronic goods or the whatever it is in the store, or you go, mm, yeah, I have one of those. You find it online and get it delivered to your house. They don't give two stuffs. And who really upset gets upset about that is the variety store, the department store, the store that provides everybody else's stuff and doesn't have anything individual. So I think that's a huge shift we're going to see. When it comes to residential, I think we've heard a lot about, oh, there's a housing market crisis. No, there isn't. I, I think that is a nonsense. What we have is we have a very particular problem where, as a result of the financial crash, unintended consequences meant that we made it much more difficult to borrow. And having allowed people to borrow huge amounts of money, so we had inflated the market and we'd allowed borrowing to drive that market, and then we curtailed it. And even though we've got low interest rates now, you can get mortgages of up to 30, 40 years if you want to at relatively low rates of interest. I think it's 25 years. You can get 2.58% if you want. You can do 3.5% and you can guarantee it for 40 years. Well, in today's market, that is quite expensive. But to be able to have that certainty that if you can afford it and you know that you can pay it back, why aren't we increasing the multiples that people can borrow if they can afford it? And it's because some cretin somewhere has decided that these are the rules that we must operate by. And we've created a pinch problem. We've created a pinch problem for a whole generation of people trying to get onto the housing market, combined with the fact that we've just encouraged building here, there and anywhere, rather than giving tax incentives to redevelop, redeploy, repurpose real estate in urban areas where you have all the infrastructure that people need. So I think we've got to have a pretty major rethink about planning, about how we organise ourselves, how we organise our societies, how we get to work, how we work, where we work, how we use space, how we tax space and how we tax individuals and the residential market. And then, of course, there's the whole ESG or environmental social governance, all that stuff that's coming in that people are jumping on bandwagons left, right and centre. And some of it, of course, is true and it works and it and it makes good sense. Some of it is just greenwash and nonsense. And we're pushing perfectly good buildings into demolition and perfectly good resources into oblivion because somebody's decided that they're unenvironmentally friendly. When in fact, what we should be doing is using what we have much more effectively. So I, I genuinely hope that the 
the result of my diatribe here is we have to become more efficient with real estate. And part of that efficiency is recognizing that although we like to own real estate, we are only but here for a finite period of time. And a, and a property is only yours for however long you own it. it might be five years, 10 years, you know, 40 years. Somebody's, that's a lifetime. And yet it's sold and somebody else has it. And we have a system that makes it very difficult to do that, that we tax it. We provide taxation on occupation. We provide taxation on every transaction. Somebody at some point is going to realize that the stamp duty is a really nasty, pernicious tax if applied to a prime residence it's it's daft and yet we do it because we sort of can because we've built inflation into the system so i think there are a lot of structural issues in our property markets taxation and the way we use real estate is arguably the most important thing we can do. But I still think that owning your own property is the most coveted thing. I know that a lot of younger people can't get on that ladder, and I hope that they can, because I think it's one of the best ways to save and invest and to build wealth and grow wealth and to pass wealth on to family members later on. But I don't think that elements of our markets, both commercial and residential, are fit for purpose. And I think we have allowed our politicians to do very stupid things in the name of either their own political agenda or alternatively their own egos. Unfortunately, we're right out of time. So many thanks again for your time, James, and for your valuable insights. Terrific conversation. That's James Max, a broadcaster, financial expert and communist. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more, by the way, of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.